People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And my guest this week is Dr. John Hanks, a zoologist with a PhD from Cambridge and with over 45 years of experience in a wide variety of conservation management and research projects in several African countries. For example, he's held a number of important positions, including Chief Professional Officer for the Natal Parks Board, Professor and Head of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Natal, as well as the first director of that university's Institute of Natural Resources, the director of the African Programme for the WWF International, and also uh, the chief executive of WWF South Africa, and the first executive director of the Peace Parks Foundation. Quite a list, Dr. John Hanks. Welcome. Rodney, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's good to make contact with you again. Well, I was just thinking, as I saw you, it's been years, and I wonder how many people who are listening to us now remember talking of nature, which ran on the old English service of the SABC for years and years, and I worked with you early in the early 80s in Durban. Yes, you did, in the Durban studios, and uh, we started in 1975, and it ran until 1985, and it was a weekly program, and um, people wrote in with various questions about nature issues, and we had a panel of three regular panel that answered their questions and it was great fun. Can you remember the panel at all? Yes I do. It was Brian Stuckenberg who did mainly the entomology, um, Gordon McLean on the birds and Joyce Stewart on the botanical side. Wonderful people, very good on radio, very relaxed and uh, I was delighted the number of letters that came in each week including one which I always remember. A person wrote in and said we do so like your program particularly the signature tune which is the best part. Actually, talking about the signature tune, we were just having a discussion, weren't we, John, about trying to find it. And if we find it, we'll give it a spin on Fine Music Radio. How about that? I would be delighted if you would do that, because a lot of people still remember the program. And although it was quite a long time ago, they say, gosh, you know, it's a pity something like this is still not going today. Mm. Well, some people have asked us to do something similar. So you never know what might happen, though we are primarily, you know, a music station. And as you said as well, John, those days when... Talking of NATO as an existence was before talk radio as we know it today, or burbling radio, as you also once said. Isn't that true? It, it is true. And I remember that um, Nigel Murphy did microphone in. That's right. And um, I think everyone in those days wanted to listen to it because he had very good people on the panel. And I think he was a particularly good chairperson. You know, he, he didn't dominate as tends to happen some of the talk shows now. And I listen to these. I must confess I have to turn some of them off. It's just so much verbal. Mm. But Nigel had quality stuff on. He had good people on. And it was a really good program. And I think he is credited with having started talk radio in this country, really, with that program microphone, which was a novelty in its day and very daring as well politically. Yes, it was. And I know, in fact, even with with talking of nature, there are certain things we weren't allowed to talk about. I remember once I said, let's do a program on evolution. And this was about, I think, 1979. And we were told, no, you can't talk about that on the radio. Can you believe it? Good grief. And um, but you lived in Durban, didn't you, all through that period? You spent a long time in Natal. Yes, I did. Well, I, to start with, I came down from um, Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it was in those days, in 1975. I was based in Pietermaritzburg, and then um, three or four years in Durban, and then back to Pietermaritzburg. So we used to commute down regularly from from Maritzburg to the studios and back again. But those days, we did about three programs in every session, so it wasn't mm-hmm. too demanding. And do you remember your producer, Roy Holshausen? Very much who so. Who was the, your, your main producer, and if he was on leave, they used to ask me to stand in. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that very clearly. And I think it must be very different in those days. Didn't you put it all on tape and you had yes. to cut and splice? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> unbelievable nowadays. <laughs> Look at this computer here where Mawanda sitting where everything is so different. And of course, a lot easier um, than having tape all over the place. We, you know, things used to literally end up on the cutting room floor yes. with all that tape. Anyway, let's not reminisce too much, although I think people do enjoy the odd reminisce here and there. And just hearing your voice, John, reminds me of all those times of listening to Talking of Nature. So there you are. Okay, now one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I invited you in was the launch of your book, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching, which you've just released. And it seems to me as though this book. They they call it a thrilling, gripping insider's tale after you having broken your silence. And there's just one question I want to ask you, and that is why did you decide to break your silence before we go into any detail of the book? 
I think it's because the rhino story suddenly became um, very much in the press nationally, locally, internationally. Um, and with rhino poaching being talked about so much, I thought we had to let people know what attempts had been done to deal with it. And I also wanted to put the record straight about Operation Knock because I came in for quite a bit of criticism. I have a chapter in the book called Trial by Media. And if you read that, you probably wouldn't have invited and believed it. You wouldn't have invited <laughs> me into the studios today because I was supposed to have done some terrible things. I think I dipped into it. Isn't that where you were supposedly hiring a helicopter to kill ANC activists or some weird Absolutely. thing? Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm linked with Prince Philip for actively promoting genocide in Africa. Oh I mean, can you believe it? And some of the stories that were there, and I thought, no, this is time I, I put the record straight. And I did it very carefully because I wanted to make sure that anyone reading it could look up the records of some of the things I said. So there's about 250 endnotes. But I've always kept meticulous diaries and notes, always have done. And I can refer back to that and with confidence I can say this is what actually happened. Oh, okay. So it is a document as much as it's not actually a biography, is it? It's not an autobiography. It's very, very specific. It's very specific related to my involvement with rhinos. Um, a lot of people have said to me, why don't I write a, a book about all other aspects of things that I've done over the years? Because lots I had to leave out in, in putting this together. But I think the most important thing is the concluding chapters when I say, well, this is what has happened in the past. If rhinos are going to survive, these are the issues we have to address. And looking ahead, I've come up with recommendations on how I think rhinos can survive. Okay, well, I'd like to discuss a little bit of that with you. Obviously, we can't go into too much detail, but hopefully it'll get people to go and read your book. But, John, let's, let's have a first music break. And what have you chosen as your first piece of music? Well, first piece of music is something very nostalgic for my wife and I, and it's the Schubert um, Trout Quintet, the fourth movement. In 1963, when I was at university and my wife-to-be, Carol, was a nurse, we met, and I said, there's a concert on, would you like to come to it? And I thought, well, if she doesn't like good music, this is not going to last. <laughs> and we came along, she came along, and the Trout Quintet, Fourth Movement, is something that we always say, there we are, listen. All these years later. Yes. Okay, let's enjoy some more nostalgia, John.
sadly we have to leave that music. We have to be ruthless here on People of Note, John. Otherwise, we have more music than speech, and there's so much I want to find out about you. But that was part of the fourth movement, the theme and variations of the Trout Quintet by Schubert, with that memorable tune played by the Prague Piano Quintet. The first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, brought to you by Peter Drin Productions, Dr. John Hanks. And one of the main reasons, as I said, apart from many reasons, I invited you, John, into the studio to talk about your book, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. So I'd like just to concentrate on that for a short while and maybe ask you some naive questions. How long has rhino poaching been going on? Is it a relatively new phenomenon or has it been going for decades or centuries? Well, it really started to escalate in about 1970 when it... um, it started in East Africa and it spread to the West and to the South from there. And the black rhino were very much targeted at the start. There were about 100,000 black rhino in Africa at that time. Um, because of this scourge of poaching, they would reduce to about 2,500 um, by the time that people started to wake up and do something about it. But the, the sad thing is that rhinos were killed at the time for their horn, and it was going to the Far East for medicinal purposes and also to to Yemen, where it was made into traditional dagger handles. And it was something that could be addressed. I think people in, in Yemen realized that it was um, having an impact on wild populations and, it, and, and they did respond to the request to stop it. But traditional Chinese medicine is something totally different, and that was more difficult to stop. So that was the time when it really started. And then it moved south and... Um, it's the scale of the poaching is something that people don't really appreciate. I remember when I was doing my PhD in Luangwa Valley in Zambia, and I left there in 1970. And the Luangwa Valley alone had 4,000 black rhino. And by 1987, every single one of those had been eliminated. Oh, now, goodness. that is just one small part of Zambia, which had a really healthy population. And then it moved south into Zimbabwe. It moved further um, ac- across Africa. And um, and you realize how serious the situation became. Then it moved on to white rhino populations, of course, which were further south. Is there any difference in the horn or the what people want from the horn between a white and black rhino? That's a very interesting question because a lot of people assume the horn is going to be the same in both species. But think of what a, a white rhino eats. It's a grazer and a black rhino is a browser. And a black rhino eats all sorts of plants that... Um, most other animals can't touch. For example, if you see a black rhino eating euphorbia, this white latex is vicious stuff. And um, I was in Namibia a little while ago and seeing a, a black rhino eating this euphorbia had this white latex all over its face. If you put a little bit of that latex on your tongue, on your eye, it's absolutely vicious stuff. Now, think of what happens with a, um, a black rhino. It can eat it, other animals can't. And in that latex are substances that get sequestrated into the horn as a result of the way the horn grows. And if I wanted to kill you, Rodney, and I gave you arsenic, where does arsenic end up? It's a it's a test that police use. Arsenic ends up in your hair oh, yes. and your fingernails. Yes, because one hears that from forensic. That's studies. right. It's a forensic test. Now, black rhino is eating all these sort of um, unbelievable products that are in plants, and that is sequestrated into the horn. So there's obviously a difference between black rhino horn and white rhino horn. What is in the horn? I, I, as I said to you, John, I hope these are not naive questions, but not being a rhino expert by far, what is in the horn? It's that keratin. Is- it's basically the same as as fingernails or hair. That's the mm-hmm. basic ingredient of, of rhino horn. And I suppose that because of its shape and because of its traditional belief that the Chinese had for many years that it does have healing properties, it is, it's something that is not going to disappear from traditional Chinese medicine. It's never been used as an aphrodisiac. That's a myth that the popular literature um, has put out. Perhaps something to do with the shape of the rhino horn. Oh, yes, you may think it's it's <laughs> got sort of properties of an aphrodisiac, but it's never been used for that at all. Purely medicinal. But what? Just to go back a few steps, when we spoke about when rhino horn poaching began, how did people know that the Chinese wanted? I'm trying to work out: Did China come here and say, "We'll pay you vast sums of money for"? 
horns of your rhinos. No, I think this is where the investigations, the people were starting to, to find out from undercover operations, etc. Where is the rhino horn going? Who are the people, first of all, going in the field and killing the rhinos? And then somebody has to buy it. And it's it's like trading in any sort of commodity, whether it's diamonds or gold or human trafficking. You buy it at one end, you sell it at the other. So you have to get into the trade to see where it's going to. And this is where people started to find out, first of all, it's going to, to Yemen. And then going beyond that, they found a lot of it was going into the Far East. And then tracing the route right through, well, who in the Far East is buying it and why are they buying it? So the whole sort of story came together. Almost like a thriller. As you said at the beginning of your book, if a novelist possibly couldn't have come up with some of the extraordinary stories that you've come across and were able to relate in this book. Yes, it's interesting. You know, when I um, first thought about putting this story together, um, I thought, should I do this as a novel, rather like The Constant Gardener, oh, which yes, is really yes. a true story almost of what happened to the drug trade. And I remember uh, going on a writer's course that Christopher Hope um, had in Grayton. And I said to him at the end, should I write this as a true story or should I write this as a novel? He said, no, write it as a true story because it needs to be told. Mm. And um, if you look at the people involved in the book, the Prince Bernards, the British SAS, David Stoning, these are all real-life characters. And you could have made up the names, and but then perhaps it loses credibility because yes. people say, well, this wouldn't actually happen. Exactly. <laughs> and yet it seems as though this book is even more thrilling and exciting than a novel because one knows it is, it is actually happening. One more question, just physically, I want to ask you about the rhino and its horn. When the horn is cut off, is there any evidence that the rhino experiences pain? Is it a viciously cruel thing to do? Well, it, it depends how it's cut off. And I think this is where poaching is so absolutely awful. You see that uh, poachers often come into a place where rhinos live. They, they, they shoot the rhino and sometimes the animal is not killed. And they hack off the horn as much as they can, going right down underneath into the nasal cavity. Sometimes the animal comes to and then the pain must be absolutely excruciating for the animal in a case like that. But what is happening now is that many of the protected areas are darting and immobilizing the rhino. When it's immobilized, the horn is cut off well above the skin level, and of course there are no nerves there at all. The animal feels no pain whatsoever. It's given an antidote. Five minutes later, it's back on its feet. What a lot of people don't know is that the horn regrows. And in a lifetime, you can cut the horn off and allow it to regrow again, about a kilogram in 18 months, up to eight times. Goodness me. And so many people don't appreciate that. So you're dehorning the rhino as a deterrent for poaching. But then at the same time, if the horn is cut off, what do you do with it? Do you throw it away? Do you burn it? Um, or do you try to sell it into the market in a strictly controlled legal trade? And that is an option I think we have to look at. There is no pain experienced by the animal, and there is no evidence that with the horn reduced like that, that in any way it's impacting on its social life. This is the method you're talking about, the controlled method, where they are darted, yes. they, they sedated, and they are cut a few centimeters or millimeters above any of the nerve endings or the nasal passages. That's correct. And there's photographs in the book of, of how this is actually done. And um, I give references there to, to video clips that show how it's done. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people see this. They say, gosh, we didn't know that the horn regrows. No, nor did I. I had no idea. And I thought it was possible that the animal would die after the horn was chopped off. Because sometimes when you see photographs, they look as though they've been so uh, mutilated. They have. You see, this word. is where poaching, um, this is where the, what the poachers do. And, you know, if, if you see the pain and the suffering that is caused by... The, the way these horns are hacked off, sometimes the animal is, is, is not, it's, it's still alive. Mm -hmm. um, you would want to get hold of poachers and cut off their appendages as well. <laughs> right. Well, while we ponder that, John, your next piece of music looks rather intriguing, all the way from St. Petersburg. Yes, it's um, the male choir of St. Petersburg, and it's, it's, it's music, you know, that really, first time I, I heard the choir was in St. Petersburg with Anton Rupert. He'd been awarded a, um, a special accolade for setting up Peace Parks Foundation. And um, I was asked to go there and, and speak at the function. And being in St. Petersburg, it's a wonderful center for music, and going to the cathedral to hear this all-male choir my golly, it was just incredible. <laughs> and um, I'd, I'd selected one item from this, which has got this amazing bass. 
And if you hear it, if anyone's driving and listening to this, please just slow down, turn the radio up and listen to this carefully. atmosphere well two nice contrasts there john between the opening with that extraordinary bass voice and then a slightly more animated section with a saint petersburg choir and it's unique i think to russia that sound don't you agree yes it is and i think if you listen to it carefully and if you can hear it live it really does bring tears to your eyes it's it's mm. quite emotional my guest here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio is Dr. John Hanks. And we are talking mostly about his recent book called Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. And so now I want to talk a little bit more about this war, John. For example, may I just go back again and say, how did you get involved with Operation Lock? How did Operation Lock come into being? It was really in when I was with WWF in Switzerland and I was appointed to be in charge of the Africa program and I did a trip through Africa with the founder president of WWF Prince Bernard of the Netherlands and we started off by meeting people in Kenya and then we went down to Zambia and Zimbabwe and we flew down to the Zambezi River and we were standing on the bank on the Zimbabwean side and Bernard turned to me and he said, you know, we're never going to get this right. We're putting all this money into anti-poaching operations. WWF was funding a helicopter for anti-poaching patrols and so on. And he said, what we have to do is to find out who is actually driving the trade. Who are the people who are putting up the money? What do they do with the horn when they get it? And we have to deal with them. And if we don't deal with them, we're going to go on continuing doing what we're doing now and never get it right. But he said, if we're going to mount an undercover operation, it's going to be dangerous because these are the chaps who also deal in any sort of illegal commodity. And if you start sticking your nose in, you're going to get your head cut off. Literally, they will kill you. And he said, it cannot be a WWF program, but I will fund it for my own private funds if you, John Hanks, can find someone to do it. And he managed to put up the money for it. He went back to the Netherlands and he persuaded the Queen to sell two pictures she didn't particularly like, two paintings. They went to Sotheby's and they raised over £600,000, which in those days was a huge amount oh, of money. And he said to me, could I find a group to do it? Well, that's a pretty difficult task. And I thought, how on earth do you begin? And to cut a long story short, eventually you make contact with a group in London 
that was set up by the late Sir David Sterling, who founded the British SAS. And these are chaps who had done undercover operations in Northern Ireland. They understood how to infiltrate a particular group of people. They understood surveillance techniques. They were incredibly tough and well-trained people at this sort of work. So they were appointed. Uh, Bernard agreed to fund them, and he also agreed that they should start operating in South Africa because at that time so much of the rhino horn from uh, Zimbabwe and other places was coming down to South Africa and being taken out of the country. So through the, South Africa? Through South Africa. It's all part of the, the South African Customs Union, and it's all part of the trouble of using these diplomatic bags because diplomatic bags can be anything from a briefcase to a shipping container and it means that people can't they can't open these things you know they had yes. immunity yes and um so this is where the operation was based and it started in johannesburg started to infiltrate the trade and um working very closely with uh, pete lottigan who just set up an endangered species protection unit down here and they started to come up with some really really interesting results and so the infiltration, sorry, John, had actually begun. The SAS people were now working, infiltrating. What well, was they going came on. in to actually work with people down here to teach them on how to do work mm. of this nature. Mm. Um, how do you set up? How do you? You see, to do this, you actually have to pose as a trader. You have to get access to Rhino Horn. They got access to Rhino Horn for a way in which I describe in the book, and they po posed as traders. They said, "Okay, I've got Rhino Horn. I want to sell it." and you make contact with people from the Far East and elsewhere. But um, in the process, you start to find out who are the individuals involved. And you always have the great problem, what do you do with this information? And let me just give one example of how difficult it was. They found out that the in Zimbabwe, the North Korean embassy was very much involved with taking Rhinohorn out of the country. And we thought, well, this is a watertight case. Let's. Uh, they went up to, to Zimbabwe. They handed over the dossier to the chief of police, and he said, gosh, well, I'll look into this. Five days later, they were told to drop it, and that order came from Mugabe. Why? Well, cast your mind back. Do you remember that Mugabe used the North Koreans to help him with the genocide that took place in Matabililand? when some 30,000 of his own people were killed. My goodness. So he, I owed, remember. he owed the North he Koreans owed. a favor, and you don't touch them. Let them go. And this shows how very difficult it is. When you, you find out information, um, who is involved with trade, what do you do with the information? Because sometimes it goes right to the top, and you've only got to pick up the Sunday papers down here now, and you see almost every week, there's another exposure in the Mail and Guardian, another exposure of high-level corruption, and nothing ever seems to happen about it. Mm. That, is the big, that is the big mystery, isn't it? It, it, it is, and it's very, very difficult. Because it, corruption is something that we have to deal with, yes. and I give accounts in the book of how the most unlikely people became involved in these corrupt activities. Even, even Hastings Bander, who everyone regarded very highly at the time, was a British-trained medical doctor. He came out, became president of Malawi. And he was involved in looting a huge amount of state resources. Nobody thought it was possible. Someone like that would do it. And I remember we had a meeting with him, and he said, yes, we really would like WWF to help us get on top of this problem. I mean, he could have funded this out of the money he stole himself. Instead of asking little old ladies who put their five pounds into <laughs> WWF to help them fund an operation, Goodness this was the difficulty me. you have. Yes. What do you deal? What do you do with corruption when you see how far it goes? And in South Africa, have while Operation Lock was underway, was the government of the day and now cooperative? Yes, we, we had to. It was absolutely essential. You see, um, coming in like this, if if the South African police came across people posing as traders and we hadn't told them that we're going to be doing this work, they would have been arrested. Yes. So right at the start, the decision was made that we had to have, we had to go right to the top of the South African government and say, this is what we would like to take place. Can we cooperate and work with you? Okay, so that must have been a little bit of a relief. So you were working legally, in a sense, although it was underground. Yes, it was, but then, of course, we got criticized because they were the height of apartheid days, and there were all sorts of stories coming out at the time of the way the South African Defense Force was involved in um, 
the legal trade of ivory and rhino horn from Angola. What do you do with that information? We weren't aware of it at the time, mm. but it was it was something that subsequently we realized that it was a difficult decision to actually cooperate with the government at the time. We had no choice. We had to do it. Yes. Gosh. And the current government? Um, I think the current government is, is certainly very aware of what's going on. And the minister is making regular statements about her commitment to dealing with rhino poaching. Um, there's the South African Defence Force, as you probably know, has been stationed in Kruger National Park helping with it. But, you know, even with all the money that's going into Kruger National Park, and Kruger Park gets a million visitors a year, even with the army there full-time, even with Howard Buffett putting in some $27 million for rhino poaching in Kruger National Park, they're still not on getting on top of it. That shows you how difficult it is. My goodness, and the vast expenses as well of Africa. Yes. Uh, John, let's have another piece of music. I see a bit of a contrast here from low basses. Well, exactly. And I think um, I've chosen the duet from La Traviata. And I think just listen to this beautiful soprano voice and the wonderful range of notes in contrast to the bass we had previously. And let's keep the listener guessing and tell them who, see if they can guess the soprano, but we'll say who it is afterwards. <laughs> The soprano's name was Anna Nebtrebko and Sempre Libre from La Traviata by Verdi with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra and Claudio Abado there. Another choice, the third choice of my guest on People of Note on Fine Music Radio, Dr. John Hanks, talking about his book, well, partly about his book, Operation Lock, because it's such a fascinating story. But, John, can we just drift away from it for the moment, just to, because you've had such a varied life that I know we best not get too involved, then we'll come back to the book. But can you remember what got you into this whole world of zoology? Was it a lifelong, were you a little boy who collected things like Gerald Durrell? Well, I was an only child, and I used to spend a lot of time pottering around on my own in England. And I went to one of those old-fashioned boarding schools in England, which nowadays you think of uh, teachers getting thrown out for even smacking a child. I mean, we were, <laughs> if we misbehaved ourselves, um, six of the best was standard practice. Hmm. And Hanks bend down, whack, 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 six of the best from... Um, from headmaster that was no one even thought anything about it had old-fashioned standards of discipline it was uh, 
It was one of those boarding schools where we used to get up in the morning and wash in cold water in our underpants. It was supposed to make you tough, I think, but just make me hate being cold all the time. But it was one of those cold winter days, and I read that lovely book called Serengeti Shall Not Die. And there were pictures of zebra-striped aeroplanes flying across the bush in Africa. And I thought, gosh, this must be the place to go. This must be what I'd like to do. And I'd been accepted to go to Cambridge to read zoology. And I had a gap year. And I thought, well, rather than just sort of spend time hanging around England, let's see if I can get myself a voluntary job in Africa. And I applied to an organization that had just started in those days. It was called World Wildlife Fund, WWF. And in those days, it consisted of one man and a secretary working in London. And I went to see them, and they put me in touch with people in East Africa. And I spent six months there, and I've been associated with Africa ever since. That's <laughs> how it started. And if anyone had told me in those days that WWF would go to the extent that it is now, you'd have found almost impossible to believe. I mean, the, the South African office alone has 120 staff in Cape Town. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And there's branches all around the world now from that very simple beginning. Gosh, it is. It's a, it's a remarkable organization in many ways. But you've been in charge of so many remarkable organizations. I mean, the Natal Parks Board was very famous. I don't know if it still is. When you were there, it did a whole lot of very, very important work. I was very lucky to be appointed as the chief professional officer of the organization. And um, I work with some amazing people who I still have contact with today. And it, it was really thanks to, to Ian Player and the work he did that the white rhino came back virtually from the brink of extinction. And he had, he believed that if the white rhino is going to survive, the private sector's got a very important role to play. And you've got to move it out and get private owners to take on rhinos. And of course they do that if it has a value. And if they can get money back from the animals by by selling them on as live animals or by selling the old surplus animals for hunting trophies and so on. Let me stress, I don't enjoy hunting myself, mm -hmm. but I'm the first to realize that hunting has a very important role to play in conservation in Africa today. And if you stop it, as has now has happened in Kenya and has now recently happened in Botswana, a lot of land that was set aside for conservation will simply disappear. It's an odd thing to hear you say that, uh, John, that you support hunting to an extent, but I understand, I understand. It's like apparently extinction is also quite important in many ways. Yes, I, I think that people don't understand the role that hunting plays and the fact that the funds raised from hunting can be ring-fenced and earmarked for conservation projects. Mm -hmm. And there are many places now in South Africa where the farming community have moved away from arable land, moved away from livestock, and gone purely over to wildlife. Some of them do it just for ecotourism. Others do it for a combination of tourism and hunting. But this means that large areas of land that used to be farming or even subsistence agriculture now is, has moved across to wildlife conservation. And the beauty of this is that the small game reserves and, and national parks are now joined by a continuum of land that's used for conservation purposes, which of course is a great benefit to biodiversity conservation. We must appreciate that. And it employs far more people than were employed previously on a sustainable basis. Mm -hmm. You see, the difference between that and, and mining, mining is just once off. Once the resource is gone, that's it. The land is degraded. But keeping land for conservation purposes on a sustainable basis means you can go on doing this for perpetuity. Is the rhino black or white endemic to Africa? Does it appear anywhere else in the world? Is it purely an African animal? No, there are th uh, three, uh, three other species in Asia, um, far lower numbers than the ones here. But my focus was on the black rhino and the white rhino. The white rhino now about 20,000. The black rhinos are built up to about 5,000. But, of course, under threat. Mm. All the time poaching is going on. But numbers at, at present rates, I think they are obviously highly threatened, present rates of poaching. But I think enough is being done to make sure they have a sustainable future if we continue to invest in everything that needs to be done, and particularly to help the private landowner. You know, there's, there's more rhinos on private land in South Africa than the whole of the rest of Africa put together. Oh, that's interesting. And, and they've got a very, very important role to play. And yet their security costs, Rodney, are very high. Some of them are paying up to 250,000 rand per month to protect their animals. That's not sustainable. No, of course And not. we're saying, well, what can they do to help? Is there any possibility that if we had a legal trade in rhino horn, 
the horn could be sold and that money is ring-fenced and plows back into their field protection. That, to me, is a logical way to go. So would, is it possible, uh, you hinted at this earlier, to have a legal trade in rhino horn? Yes, let me, let me explain that. At the moment, the international trade in horn is banned. And this is because an organization called CITES, Convention, the International Trade and Endangered Species of Fauna and Flora, meets every three years and deliberates on issues like this. Now, the next big CITES conference is being held here in South Africa from the 26th of September to the 5th of October. And some 180 countries from around the world will almost certainly send delegates to attend this conference. And it's at that conference that decisions are made. What do we do about ivory? What do we do about rhino horn? But what do we do about lots of other species? And I think people think that CITES are just concerned with the charismatic megafauna, as we call them. CITES deals with plants. It deals with all sorts of other highly endangered species. And that's what this conference is going to be about. Now, if the conference decided that if any one country put in an application to trade internationally in rhino horn, if that was agreed by a two-thirds majority, they could start selling rhino horn. And one of the countries that's put in this application is Swaziland. Swaziland's got a very small population of rhino horn, but they're going to dehorn them and they're going to start selling their stockpiles. And that money coming out, going on to the market, a legal market, could really help them with the funds they so urgently need. Absolutely. So, and using that system you spoke about earlier, a controlled, they are shot, but the, uh, what's the word? Um, immobilized. Immobilized. Immobilized by a drug called M99, and they go down very quickly. Right, okay. Let us have another piece of music, and then I want to ask you after that, John, about what your book proposes for the future. So what do we have here now? Well, it's, it's something from Puccini, from La Boheme, um, how cold your little hand is, let me warm it for you. <laughs> and uh, there's a very good reason for that. My, my wife was a great believer in star signs, and I'm an Aquarian, and she gave me a little book talking about the Aquarian personality. And I'm just very quickly read one or two things. He said, Aquarians are keenly interested in world affairs. They are more loving to people in general than to individuals. They tend to be impractical. I don't agree with that. But they're <laughs> dreamers and are self-appointed revealers of the truth. I uh, bet she likes uh. that one. And, and then she goes on to say they're cool and detached but resent criticism. They make great plans and are sometimes carried away by their enthusiasm. Well, I often say to people, if you meet somebody who's very enthusiastic, I say, are you by any chance an Aquarian? And it's just a bit of a joke in the family. <laughs> but then the last thing it says, they often have cold hands and feet. And there's a picture of a bed with a very cold Aquarian lying on it. So when I meet somebody at a dinner party and I shake hands with them, they've got a very cold hand, I say, are you by any chance an Aquarian? And they say, why do you ask that? And they say, well, Aquarians always have cold hands and feet, and I say, in bed. And they're, oh, they're <laughs> shocked to hear that. So let's listen to some music by, by um, Puccini. How cold your little hand is, let me warm it for you.
was the voice of Orlando Villaton, the famous aria which Rodolfo sings to Mimi about her hand being frozen in Act One of La Boheme by Puccini, a choice of my guest, Dr. John Hanks. We're running out of time, John, and just before I let you go, I want to go back to your book, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching, because at the beginning you said if you look at the last two chapters in the book, there's a sort of plan, or where, where are we now, or what are you hoping to achieve? Well, I think what I try to do at the end is um, address some of the issues of concern that tend to be overlooked and people are very reluctant to speak about. For example, we're still dictated to by the Western world on how we should manage wildlife. And, of course, those countries don't have rhinos. We have the rhinos here. And if the countries who look after rhinos can come together and say, this is what we want to do, this is what we believe is right, and if they say that dehorning rhinos, selling the horn legally to a strictly controlled market with the money ring fence going back into field protection is the way to go, then I think the outside world should support it. You see, part of the trouble is that people don't realize Africa's being transformed so quickly. And it's no longer this wonderful Serengeti-like ecosystem that goes from the Cape to Cairo uninterrupted. There's massive human population growth. There's, there's land transformation. The national parks are being surrounded by people, and often people are encroaching into them. We have to address these issues, and we have to look at the whole picture of land use options in Africa. What do we do about the surrounding areas outside? How do we involve communities? Unless the benefits of conservation go back to communities, we're not going to get it right. And I think what is happening now, there are far too many well-meaning NGOs dictating to Africa as to how it should manage its wildlife. And we think we should take ownership of this and say this is what we believe should be done. And if hunting is part of it, whether you like hunting or not, it has a very important role to play. If dehorning rhinos is part of it, then let's get people to understand this. And for goodness sake, let's stop 
saying that destroying stockpiles of ivory and rhino horn is a message we're sending out that's going to work. What is the message, Rodney? Think of that. If I was a poacher and I see rhino horn stockpiles being burnt, and then I see rhino populations declining, the message is that rhino populations are going to disappear, stockpiles are being destroyed, the price is obviously going to go up, let's go and poach as quickly as possible while there's still something there. It's the most stupid thing I've ever heard, that burning stockpiles is going to help. It's sending a message. It's sending the wrong message. And that's what we have to get about. John, is Operation Lock still in operation? No, it's not. It came to an end about three years after it started because somebody pulled the plug on it. It's a long story of the individuals who were involved in this. It's not a very pleasant one in some ways, but people who wanted to be involved in it and they couldn't, and they started leaking things to the press. And some of the stories that came out subsequently, well, the chapter about trial by yes. trial by media <laughs> is, if you read that, you wouldn't think it's possible. So it did come to an end, but at least it made a start and it made people realize what could be done. Right. It's interesting talking to you, John, because they, you put a positive spin on what is a tragedy, really, and has been for many years. And so John Hanks breaking his silence after 25 years in this gripping insider's account of one of the strangest chapters of the Rhino War, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching by John Hanks, published by Penguin. And I think John has whet your appetite to go and get a copy and read one. John, thank you very much, and all strength to your arm. Thank you very much, Rodney, for asking me. Dr. John Hanks was my guest on People of Note, and People of Note is brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Now on stage at Peter Turin's Theatre on the Bay, a brand new, fresh and exciting production of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's wonderful musical... Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Starring Earl Gregory as Joseph, Bianca Lagrange as the narrator, and Jonathan Rocksmith as the rock and rolling pharaoh. Now on stage at Peter Turin's Theatre on the Bay. Book now. FMR.